We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today's guest is Doug McElway. He's a familiar face, I'm sure, a familiar voice, I should say, to so many of you. He spent years at Fox News. He was a local journalist for a long time. He is now out with a new show called Centerpoint. It's going to debut on Monday, March 28th at 7 30 p.m. on TBN. And Doug was kind enough to call in um, from the airport where he was waiting to catch a flight to commute uh, to Dallas, as he'll have to do now for the show. But he has so many insights on changes in media and changes in Washington, D.C. and and culture and all of that. And you get so many good um, glimpses into the industry and into the industry over the years. His perspective is absolutely fascinating. Um, And I hope you will stick around for Doug's interview on today's edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. This is a real pleasure, Emily. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, why don't you start off just by telling us about the new show? I'm so curious as to what you're hoping to do with it. Yeah, well, we start uh, this coming Monday. That's our first day on the air, and we're going to be doing an hour and a half special. By the way, it airs at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, we're going to be broadcasting the show out of Dallas, and I'm commuting to Dallas uh, every week to do the show from my new home in uh, Amelia Island, Florida. So uh, that's going to be a first for me. But uh, they've thrown just tremendous uh, resources into the studio and into the production. So it's really exciting. We start Monday with an hour and a half special uh, on Ukraine. Uh, interesting guest and the latest on the situation there and the ramifications for, for Americans and, and for the world, what lies ahead. Uh, but generally speaking, the show will be a half hour, again, airing 7.30 p.m. Eastern uh, with the, the possibility of extending the show to an hour or an hour and a half depending on on breaking news or uh issues of the day which which devote uh, which should devote I should more more resources and more time right and i'm also curious as to how the the sort of christian lens um is is one that will shape the news and shape the way you cover the news can you tell us a little bit about that Right. It's a, well. It's an interesting uh, thing for me because it's an absolutely first uh, for me to enter into this kind of a sphere. I am not a, a Christian broadcaster, either by tradition or or uh, by practice, uh, but I will be surrounded by Christian broadcasters. And I made it very clear in my interview with with Matt Crouch, who who runs TBN, that that I'm not a Christian broadcaster. Uh, uh, that that. Uh, you know, I've made more mistakes as an adult human being in life uh, than anybody can make and still remain alive. And that all of my experience has been simply as a broadcaster and as a newsman. But I made it very, very clear to him that I have ultimate respect and, and indeed reverence for the United States Constitution and for the role that the Judeo-Christian ethic and ethos plays into that. Uh, every kid in the United States used to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God. That's the fundamental beginning of the United States uh, Constitution, and that's what the founders knew. At that time, when they wrote that document, it was heretical thinking. It was revolutionary thinking that all men should be considered uh, created equal under God. Uh, And so that's the perspective I'm coming from, my reverence for the Constitution and those words in it. 
think the country has lost that. I think the country is is in rapid decline and rapid decay. decay. Uh, so I think we can, you know, I don't want to say correct that. That would be awfully presumptuous of me. But but we can be a voice for reason, for sanity, for truth. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask that that very question. And and you've been covering Washington politics for years. And when did you sort of when did it dawn on you that rapid decline was upon us? When did that just sort of hit you? Or is it something you felt building for a long time? Well, it's it's been building for a long time. And I, I first became really aware of it. I mean, uh, to the point where it was really bothering me in my my day to day life as a, as a news person, in the 1990s when I was a local anchor in Washington D.C. and I I worked at the NBC affiliate and the ABC affiliate uh, for for I guess I was 30 years I spent as a local TV news anchor and I began to see a change in news through that that 30 year period, and and I began speaking out of, of, about it uh, in the 1990s in my profession in, in Washington D.C. where stations would basically eliminate half the viewpoint in, in any number of stories. And uh, I would go home at night really angry. I'd complain to my wife and say, this is wrong what we're doing here. We're, we're eliminating conservative voices. They're not, they're not airing conservative perspectives on these things. Um, and I, you know, I, I would, I, I can remember certain phrases that I would use when I would go home at the end of the day and say, you know, Susan, I want there to be a graphic under that, my name when I'm reading that teleprompter saying, don't believe this. It is not the truth. It's not the truth. We're, we're not including other perspectives here. And they were not active errors per se. Sometimes there were, but most often it was not active errors. My favorite term is they were errors of omission. You just left half the story out uh, or you, you didn't include other perspectives, and that that was the fundamental error. And so, I, I actually I began anonymously writing pieces for Tucker Carlson's a, a, a brand new website called the Daily Caller, which now is sort of entrenched, uh, but it was just getting started. And, and I called him up one day and said, I, "I see you're doing this website. I'm I'm going bonkers as a local TV news anchor here, reading stuff that I know to be either wrong or just not including other points of view." Can I can I write some stories about uh, my experiences? And he let me do that. I did it anonymously, and I kind of regret it because I should have put my name on it, even though it meant I would would be fired. But I ended up getting fired from a couple of jobs anyway for speaking up. I would go into morning meetings, story planning meeting, to say, you know, yesterday we did this story, but we didn't include this point of view. Why didn't we do that? And that's not a good technique if you want to keep your job. <laughs> To, to, to tell a room full of people that, that we did this wrong. And I started doing it routinely. And, you know, before you knew it, I was I was losing contracts. They were not being renewed. And I was getting kind of, I wouldn't say blacklisted, but maybe quietly blacklisted in local news. And uh, uh, here's here's a really interesting story, Emily. I was I was uh, going to my son's high school graduation. I went to a school called St. Andrews, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, and his graduation ceremony was at the National Cathedral. This is in the year 2010. And the graduation speaker that day was the White House communications director, Anita Dunn, the Obama White House communications director, Anita Dunn. And she said, I have really bad hearing. And, and as you know, the National Cathedral is a very echoey hall. 
And um, so I was having trouble hearing the speakers. Um, and at some point, I thought I heard Anita Dunn say, um, two of my favorite political philosophers are Mother Teresa and Mao Zedong. <laughs> and I turned to my wife and, and, and I said, did I just hear her say that one of her favorite political is Mao? said yes anyway i was just shaking my head in disbelief this is the cases director for the, the presidency of the states and she's here espousing a, a guy who's responsible for the deaths of, of what is it 30 million 50 million 90 million i don't know if the number has ever been tallied there was various five-year plans and the famines that were reduced from these kinds of things and political killings and all this sort of stuff anyway we walk walking out of the, uh, of the cathedral at the end of the ceremony, and there's a table back there that says, if you want a CD of today's ceremony, uh, $5 and send send the check to, you know, such such address. I did. The CD came back. I popped it in the computer when it arrived in the mail, looked at it, says, sure enough, there's Anita Dunn saying, you know, two of my favorite political philosophers are such such. I took that CD and knocked on the door of the Fox News Washington Bureau and said, do I have a story for you? I thought about going to my news director in local news in Washington to do it, but I thought he'll, he'll tell me. I know exactly what he's going to say. He's going to say, that's not a story. We're not interested in that because I'd had 20 years of experience of dealing with those kinds of things. And Fox News was under tremendous fire at that time because uh, the White House wanted to eliminate them from White House pool duties at the mm. time. This was a big controversy. And I thought they might be interested in the story, especially given they're, they're trying to fight for representation in the White House pool. And so uh, I took it to Fox News. They aired it on the, the Glenn Beck show that evening and th throughout primetime the whole day, it became a big story. Um, and it, it helped ultimately get me a job at Fox News hmm. uh, where I was happily employed for 10 years. That's an amazing yeah. story. Um, and, and it's an amazing story yeah. because it's the kind of thing that nobody was paying attention to at the time at all. No, And, and now maybe yeah. people with the critical race theory conversation and all of that might be paying right. slightly more attention. But, Doug, I'm curious, what? how do you explain – you've spent your time around a lot of these journalists who – ostensibly want to do journalism and they want to sort of do the right thing. What's your explanation for why they, they're so unfair? It's really simple. It's really simple. People want to please the boss. Uh, you know, when you, when you're just starting out and you, you, you know, uh, leased an apartment in a big city costs a fortune, you can barely pay for it on your reporter's starting salary or you're starting a young family You've got kids and you're putting them in daycare centers or whatever. You've, you've got a, you've got tremendous costs. You've got a car payment. You've got an apartment payment. You've got daycare or schools, whatever it may be, food on the table. You don't, you don't want to give up your job. You do what the boss tells you. So I don't blame individual reporters, although there is a self-selection uh, process in news, what sociologists call self-selection where like-minded people just gather, basically. And so when people get hired in this business, you, you have, uh, you know, the, the, the hirers, the, the news directors or the editors are looking for the right kind of clips or the right kind of um, uh, resume tapes, they're looking for the right phraseology, the right wording, the positioning of, of the progressive viewpoint first. Maybe you'll throw 
throw a bone in there, give a conservative viewpoint uh, uh, a little bit later on in, 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 the, in the piece or in the package story. But that's what finds acceptability in, in the herd of progressive media. Um, uh, and then, and then you, you have the owners. This is where the real issue is, the publishers. The owners right. and the publishers who are trying to convey their political viewpoints. And this is filtered down from on high to the rank and file who have to carry the load, carry the weight, you know, carry the message that the, the publishers and the owners want. And people don't want to, you know, people want to advance. If you, if you use that right phraseology in your story, um, the right perspective, the right progressive perspective, then you're going to get and you do it well, you're going to get advanced. You're going to get a bigger salary, a more prestigious position. And that's how it works. Um, I think in the old days, uh, there was much more leeway given to reporters just to go out and cover the story fairly, uh, present, you know, the nuances, the details, both sides, the, and oftentimes it's more than two sides, three or four, however many there, there were, nuance, nuance included. Nowadays, I, I, it, it just, the story is gone. The center is gone and things have kind of spun out of orbit into these, um, you know, political representations, mm. media. And, and as a result, here's, here's another little interesting sort of uh, theory that I've worked with. We've been here before in the United States during the age of yellow journal journalism. Mm -hmm. We're in the, in the uh, digital age now, but more than a century ago, we were the, in the, the dawn of the industrial age. There were similar upheavals going on in the United States. And at that time, before radio, before TV, you had newspapers that l were largely bought and paid for by political interests. You know, you had, in, in fact, the newspapers oftentimes in their, their banner, the name was reflected, the Arkansas Democrat or the such and such Republican or whatever. And they, they towed the line for the, the two major parties in the United States. I have a, a distant, distant relative i think he was probably a great great uncle uh it was editor of the brooklyn eagle at the turn of the century which was the most widely read afternoon paper in the country um and it was a democratic paper sort of uh, aligned with the democratic tammany hall machine in new york city um but it entertained alternative perspectives and was widely criticized by Democrat machine in New York at the time for doing so. But the editor, this distant relative of mine, wanted to hear other voices. And it eventually led to that paper becoming very, as I say, the most widely read afternoon newspaper in the country. And, and what happened was, I think the Brooklyn Eagle paid no, no small part in this, was that, that readers began to find that they could no longer trust their news sources for accurate information because they they too much represented a, a single party's view and americans no longer knew what the truth was and so newspapers like the brooklyn eagle began to find if they included other perspectives they were more representing the truth and uh and that's what readers wanted and they found that by including alternative views their readership actually went up, their profits actually went up, and it ultimately led to the heyday of American journalism in the 
you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and, and 60s in this country, where I, I would consider that to be the the, the, the great heyday of American journalism. Um, but we're here again, you know, we're here again, where people are, are reading stuff, and it, it's, it's compounded, you know, it's been squared, it's been turbocharged by the digital generation, where virtually everybody is a reporter, and virtually nobody has fact checkers, <laughs> or even the fact checkers that the big publications have are oftentimes wrong. Um, so people are clamoring, are longing for truth, and it, that that's where my allegiance to the Christian faith and to TBM, because these people who who work for TBM are uh, in in search of the truth and a godly representation. I'm in search for the truth and a journalistic reputation. And uh, so that's where we we are simpatico for sure. Right. And Doug, actually, could you tell us more about why you wanted to become a journalist in the first place? Well, it comes from my family more than anything. Um, I, uh, I come from this long line of journalists. I told you about my great, great uncle at the Brooklyn Eagle, but um, his uh, see, nephew, my grandfather, well, let me say, no, his nephew, my great-grandfather, um, was a Presbyterian minister, a long line, and a long line of Presbyterian ministers going back to Scotland, worked in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, preached in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and became aware of the plight of children working in the cotton mills, child labor in the Carolinas, and was appalled by it, was appalled by the conditions that they had to work in and, and, and began writing editorials for the Charlotte News and for other publications, for various Presbyterian ministry publications and uh, against child labor and eventually picked his family up and moved them to Washington, D.C. Uh, to a house on Park Road, the last row house on Park Road before you get to Rock Creek Park. It still stands. That's where he moved his family. And... Uh, and uh, wrote editorials and lobbied the Woodrow Wilson administration against child labor and eventually wrote the law, uh, which ended child labor, at least temporarily, until the Supreme Court overruled, overruled it. Um, uh, child labor was not ultimately ended in the United States until the 1930s, but this was the year 1916, uh, 17, 18, I think, I've forgotten, that, that uh, uh, the, uh, Keating, the Keating child labor law was written. And my, my great-grandfather wrote that legislation. He, he gave up the pulpit, basically, to, to uh, take on that cause. And his and two of his sons, one of them became a Presbyterian preacher, but the, the two others became journalists. One of them was my grandfather, who, after World War I, uh, got a job as a copy boy at the Washington Evening Star newspaper, the afternoon paper in Washington, and rose through the ranks to become, you know, the uh, reporter, the city editor, the managing editor, the editor-in-chief, the editorial chairman, president of Associated Press during the Cold War years. Um, he was an, an informal advisor uh, to presidents from Herbert Hoover to, uh, to LBJ, uh, not, not because he advised them, but because they called him asking for his advice. He was so respected. Um, he was a fierce defender of the First Amendment during the Cold War, and he said, he said that any that the notion, the idea of, of a policeman or a referee determining what newspaper should write is antithetical to the First Amendment, uh, and he feared that without a responsible press, 
that we would have some sort of a policeman or a referee. Well, that day has now come here in 2022, where you have this this nexus of of uh, big tech and big government silencing voices on on the internet, shadow banning or outright blocking people from expressing their points of view. That day has now come. The day that my grandfather feared has come. Um, and so I see, you know, I can play a, a little tiny part in, in kind of fighting against that sort of thing by elucidating what, how it works and, and how the shadow banning works. And we'll do some shows on that, I hope, for sure. Um, yeah. By the way, my, my family journalism, just going back to one, this is an interesting little sidelight to, to my, my grandfather's history. He had a younger brother who dropped out of Western High School, now the Duke Ellington School for the Arts in D.C., uh, at the age of 14, dropped out of school, stole some money from his mother's dresser, enough to buy a, a train ticket, hopped, uh, got on a freight train or, or rather passenger train to uh, Florida and got a job as a newspaper reporter at the age of 14. <laughs> he later went on. He, he later went on to become the managing editor of the New Yorker magazine. St. Clair McElway was his name. And he and he was one of the great writers in the New Yorkers uh, heyday in the 1930s, 40s, c- continued writing. Uh, wow. For the New Yorker through the 1970s, and despite debilitating uh, mental illness and bipolar disease, which consumed him and and ultimately killed him, alcoholism and, and five marriages. But he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And then my uncle wrote for the Evening Star newspaper too. My brother, my brother is another hero who uh, was a reporter for the Richmond Times Dispatch for 40 years. Uh, and as a member of the Virginia Communications Call Hall of Fame, just inducted into that a couple of years ago when he retired. But uh, so I, it's in my blood. I'm the first guy in the family uh, to go into TV news, and and I've been mercilessly mercilessly teased for it. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know I've tried to make the best of it in terms of, of the family legacy and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and this is my latest expedition working for TVN. Uh, and I'm really excited about the opportunity. They're throwing a lot of resources into this, and I hope I don't let them down. That's fascinating. I, I had no idea that context is so interesting. Um, and, and so I wanted to ask you, given all of that, the dean of the house sadly passed away last week, and there was a lot of uh, remembrances of Don Young, and, and some of them of, of Alaska, of course. He was talking about sort of the way the body has changed, the way Washington has changed. And I wanted to ask you, Doug, um, how you think Washington changed in, in the years that you've been covering it. Well, it was it's my hometown too, so um, I I remember that that little southern city that uh, John Kennedy said it had all the efficiency of a southern town and all the charm of a northern town. Yes, that's the that's the Washington I grew up in, and it has changed this megalopolis that exists today. Um, I think I think you know my grandfather <laughs> again. I, I have all of his papers, so his his thoughts are fresh in mind. I've been on and off trying to write a book, but things keep getting in the way like new jobs. Um, but uh, anyway, um, he he used to say that this, this is the first country in existence where the government is actually made up by the people, you know, government of, by, and for the people. Yeah. Hello? It's not that anymore. It's not that anymore. It's, it, it's this giant bureaucracy. I've often thought, you know, people have various definitions of the swamp 
my definition of the swamp is is this massive stultifying debilitating paralyzing bureaucracy um which eats up everything in its path i at fox for 10 years i was often assigned sort of the, the uh agency stories you know what what's this policy really about this rulemaking uh, about and, and i would have to dive into the the bureaucraties and, and, and it's just truly amazing when you you dive into some of these documents uh see the writing and how and how it's so so awful it's just so awful and you can't wade through it and uh and you can see how things get lost in the bureaucraties i sort of see washington as this giant um parasite that sucks up taxpayer dollars from productive cities and and feeds itself like a giant tumor um and one that's metastasizing. Uh, that's a that's kind of a really dark view, and and it's it's oversimplified, but but I that's my view. That's my view, and and you see yourself being burdened more and more by elements of the bureaucracy. You have to you know be licensed to do this. You have to be licensed to do that. You've got to follow these regulations. If you want to build a bridge, you want to build a, a new highway, you want to build a new store, you've got to comply with so many sets of regula regulations. And, and the only people who can really do that kind of thing are, are the giant corporations who have within their system a giant body of lawyers and, and uh, regulation compliers who can navigate that with the small business person you know the, who make up the lifeblood of, of the united states uh is overwhelmed you have to be really courageous to try to wade into the bureaucracy to start a small business in this country nowadays to comply with all the regulations it's one of the reasons that the states of texas and florida just to name two i've recently moved to florida are 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 growing by leaps and bounds and people are fleeing these other states because because government has overtaken them and and they can't comply they want to make a living they want to be productive citizens and they can't do it it's mm -hmm. all it's all sort of leading i think in a very broad way and it, you know i think, I think we're all sort of a proverbial frog in the slowly boiling pot of water and, and you're, you're seeing this finally come to fruition now that where the water is beginning to boil and that people are jumping out of the pot of these uh, bureaucrat infested regions of the country, you know, for to, to places where they can make a make a living and, and thrive. Hmm. And you mentioned that it, you'll be working on uh, stories and coverage of Ukraine next week. And this is such an yeah. interesting case study. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating case study to watch the media cover Ukraine. And it's, it's difficult for a lot of people to know what's fact, what's fiction. Um, how do you how, how are you planning to sort of approach the work of covering Ukraine next week? And what do you think of the media's coverage of it so far? I think, by and large, it's been really good. Um, I think there are a variety of perspectives uh, which are reflected in television. If you flip the channels and watch it all, you, you can get sort of summation of full picture. Um, uh, disinformation, active disinformation is truly alive and well in this, perhaps more than any other uh, major news story we've seen in recent years because governments are actively you know, propagating their propaganda. 
Um, I wish we knew more about what the U.S. policy really is and, and how many weapons are being delivered there. Um, all this happening under the under the, the aegis of the threat of, of uh, nuclear war, really. It, it, I, I tend to believe Putin. I think he's pretty desperate. I think he's cornered right now like a wild animal. And when cornered wild animals are, are often prone to lashing out, what that means for Putin, I don't really, I don't really know, and I don't think anybody can predict. But it's part of their military doctrine in that country to use theater nuclear weapons. You know, it's part of a process. So, so I don't dismiss that at all. I don't. It may be a small tactical nuke, but what does that lead to? You know, what, what's the response to that? What's the Biden's administration response to that? I don't know. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the the, the interesting little tidbits of information you see a lot of the progressives you know uh chastising tucker carlson this is just one example for his siding with with russian uh with with putin on this war which is not not true it's a distortion there are there are times certainly where he raises questions about about what's the u.s interest in getting involved in ukraine with ukraine and siding with ukraine in this thing and and indeed, there's some truth in that, in the sense that Ukraine is notoriously corrupt. And when one party comes to power, threatening to end, you know, uh, corruption in the country, it, it just uh, practices a new form of corruption. I think that that's probably true. We've already seen the government under Zelensky, um, you know, eliminating opposition voices, opposition newscasts, newspapers, opposition parties. Um, what's that all about? I want to know more about that. So my role in all of this is just to ask good questions of guests, you know, mm. pose, pose the difficult questions. I mean, that's traditionally what, what journalism is all about, you know. I'm not, right. I'm not taking the interests of, of one party or another in this sense. I just want to know. I'm, I am by nature curious and I want to know what's really going on, so I I can I can exercise that by asking the right questions of guests, and that's what I plan to do. That used to be the disposition of all journalists, but it's yeah. <laughs> that went away. Uh, Doug, final question. Um, I, I'm wondering. I, I think a lot of people around the country, probably a lot of Fox viewers, a lot of viewers of cable news in general, um, wonder how the sort of, as you mentioned earlier, publishers and owners, how that corporate structure of media um, impacts what they see on their TVs or read in their papers. There's the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads, um, meaning that you're sort of drawing as many eyeballs to a subject as you possibly can, um, whether or not it has the right news value. Uh, proportional to your coverage is a different question. Um, do you have insight, you know, that you, for, for news readers who are curious about that, um, that, that could be helpful. Any insight to, to help people sort of sift through the, the spin? Is that what you're getting at here? I'm not yeah, sure I understand the question. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. If they're curious about how much that sort of if it bleeds, it leads mentality or just like the the um, what's the word I'm looking for, like the the hyper dramatization or mm -hmm. putting things that are more more dramatic um, than what might be important on the nightly news, whatever it is, um, sensationalism. Um, right. How, how much does that color the news that we get? It, it colors it a lot. It colors it a lot. I, I think especially the, 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 the search for profits 
uh, is so extreme because profit margins have declined so much with so many, so many uh, news outlets nowadays that they that people are searching for ways to monetize the product. Um, and and so, you know, that that helps to explain one of the reasons you see the breaking news graphic and the whoosh, the you know, the jet plane sound and the breaking news graphic, and and then you wait, you know, turn up the volume on the TV set with your with your remote. And it's the story you heard eight hours ago. Um, that's that's the moment <laughs> which you, you know you're kind of being fooled. So let's just let's cut all that stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, say breaking news when there really is breaking news, and and try to ask the probing questions. I, one thing that's really encouraging to me about is it Generation Z? Is it the, the new generation? I guess it's Z. Yes, yes. Um, my which I guess my youngest son is a part of now. He's 18 years old. He doesn't watch TV at all. He he. You know, everything is on his phone. Everything's on his phone. And I just sort of innately assume that means shortened attention span, Twitter generation, you know, everything in 56, you know, characters or less. No, it doesn't. What do you watch? I tell Alexander, what do you, what do you find interesting? He says, well, I'm really listening to this guy, Joe Rogan. So he had this three, he had this three hour interview with this guy, Jordan Peterson or, or, you know, who, whoever it may be. Um, and it was really fascinating. Uh, I said, you listen, you listen to three hours. Yeah. Yeah. This is an opportunity. I think people are fed up with that sort of formulaic, uh, process that you see on, on cable news and sort of infiltrating, you know, the mainstream media that one that's sort of inculcated by the TV news consultants and, and all that sort of stuff. I think people are, are moving away from that. I think that there's a, there's a thirst for, for truth. And for for nuance and substance, Joe Rogan is the perfect example. He he works out of a simple little studio. You know, how many cameras do they have in there? Two. Right. Maybe, maybe they have a wide shot, and 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 it's 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 not. You know, the camera angles and the lighting. It's putting people in. It's the substance. It's the content, and you know he can keep people sitting in their chairs for for three hours. That's 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 a game changer. Now I'm not, you know, we had a half hour show, so we can't do that. But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna run our interviews longer, and and I, as an anchor chair, I'm gonna push for, you know, let's let this run. If this guy is interesting, people want to hear what they have to say. If she's interesting, let this thing run. Let it go. You know. Hmm. So yeah. I, I think I think that's where the, the, you know, I think that's what's changing there's a there's a, there's a, a movement afoot for more substance more more uh, more content yeah uh, let's not let's not cut the sound bites to five seconds anymore let's just let this run i couldn't agree with that more i think that's like an absolutely accurate perspective and your show is called center point it debuts yep. on monday march 28th at 7 30 p.m eastern on tbn doug mccallway thank you so much for your time today my pleasure